The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. So last week we were talking about uh, the continuation that happened from the healing at the pool of Bethsaida. Jesus goes into that dark place, finds this man who's been there for 38 years, asks him, does he want to be healed? He gives the reason. He doesn't even answer. He just says, well, I can't be healed because I don't have the power to get there. I, 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 every time the waters are stirred, I don't get there in time. Someone else beats me to it. I, I can't be healed. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. So the picture there is this guy experiences this healing, undeserved grace. I mean, it's just, there, he didn't even ask for it. He doesn't even know who Jesus is a little bit later on when he's in the uh, tabernacle there, or the uh, temple and they ask him who healed you or who told you to pick up your bed and walk. And he's like, I don't know who it was. He disappeared after that happened. So this guy doesn't know Jesus, didn't even ask for the healing and he experiences it. So there's no effort on his part. He's undeserving of this healing. And yet Jesus extends it to him. Then it goes to the scene of the temple. He finds him again and he says, hey, see you are well, uh, but make sure that you go and sin no more, at least something worse happened to you. We talked about the warning there was probably because of the difference of setting. One being the setting of the place where all the invalids were gathered around hoping for a healing, a very dark place full of sickness and illness to the temple. And so the warning was not so much of, you know, hey, you're gonna be worse off than the shape you were in physically because there's not a whole lot worse you can be than an invalid for 38 years. Um, I think it was a spiritual warning. Be sure that you don't become like these Pharisees that you've been talking to. Don't trade one form of paralysis for another. Don't trade physical paralysis for spiritual paralysis. And I think that was the warning there. And then Jesus, of course, is confronted by the religious leaders and the conversation ensues about who Jesus is and why does he have the authority. And Jesus basically says, I have the authority to heal on the Sabbath because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so if I was to summarize last week's teaching, I, I would do it something like this. Jesus can heal on the Sabbath. Why? Because he has a special relationship with the Father as the Son. In other words, he is God. What does that mean? It means he can heal the sick. It means he can raise the dead. And it means he will judge. So what does that mean? So you should believe. And that's why he ends it last week. You should believe because of these things. So today's text continues out of that into a little bit more of what that means about the judgment. Now, remember this, this passage is a little bit tricky as it unfolds because Jesus makes this declaration of, I don't do anything unless I see the father doing it. That's my cue. Then he goes and he says, the father judges no one. He leaves the judgment to the son. Well, then you're doing something that you don't see the Father doing. But then he goes on and explains it. It's because of this special relationship that he knows what the Father wants. He knows how the Father judges. It's not that the Father doesn't judge. It's the Father can trust the Son because the Son has centered himself around God as his identity, as his purpose, and the kingdom of God is what he's working towards. And those really are the three things that you saw last week in Jesus's um, explanation of himself. A special relationship with God. His identity is with God. He finds the, the purpose of God. What I see the Father doing, that's the same thing that I do. And it's about furthering the kingdom of God. So those are the three things that Jesus has centered around. And because of that, there is this perfect submission within the God. Godhead or the community of God. In other words, God within himself. There's one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are perfectly submissive because they center themselves around the same exact thing. One purpose, one goal, one identity, okay? 
So you're going to find that it's going to be very important as we move forward because John is setting up this invitation that we could come into that divine community. Now, again, I'm not saying that you're going to become God. I'm not even saying you're going to become a little G God. What it is, is about our purpose and us being in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we then begin to center ourselves around the same thing that Christ did. In other words, we find our identity in Christ, just like Jesus says, I find my identity in the Father. We center ourselves around the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of ourselves. And then we also center ourselves around whatever we saw Jesus doing, those are the things that we do. Just as Jesus said, what I see the Father doing, that's what I do. And you're gonna see this develop, Jesus will pray a prayer in chapter 17. And he basically says those same things. He says, they're going to do what they saw me doing. Let them be one just as you and I are one, Father. So there is a setup that John is giving to us. Number one, helping us to identify who Jesus is and what he came to do, because that's going to be crucial for us later on to realize what does salvation mean for us? In other words, what am I called into? What am I supposed to do? And what does following Christ look like for me? Well, luckily, Jesus has already modeled that for us. And so just as Jesus says, I do what I see the Father doing, we should be saying, I do what I see Jesus doing. Because Jesus is doing what he sees the Father is doing. And we're all centered around one purpose and we're centered around one identity. We found our identity in Christ. That is crucial because there are some other things that happen later on in the Gospel of John where Jesus will say to his followers, hey, you ask anything you want in my name and I will give it to you. Anything you want and you ask in my name, I will do it. Well, there's that picture of Jesus willing to do what we ask. Now, here's the thing. You can't ask for a Mercedes. Why? Because that's not centered around his kingdom. That's not found in the identity of God. That's not found in the purpose that he came to do. So the point is, Jesus is saying when we center around the same things that he does, then we're in this relationship, this divine relationship with God. Now, all of a sudden, our prayers will begin to change in substance, and Jesus can honor our prayers because our prayers are centered on the same thing that his prayers would be centered on. And that's where we're going with this. And I want you to be aware of that because all of this early uh, talk and theology and the conversations that Jesus has with these people, John is allowing us to see into Jesus' life and ministry because he's building a foundation of what we are supposed to understand about ourselves. So verses 19 really through 24, they come across almost like a parable. And the point of it is to confirm the, the claims that Jesus has made of himself. So the story is about a son who is apparently apprentice of the father and God's work has been unfolding ever since the fall of creation. And now it finds its culmination in the appearance of the son. So Jesus said, the father has been working until now and I am working. What is he talking about there? Well, he meant that ever since the fall in creation, God has been working to fulfill the promise that he made there. Now you think about one of the promises that he made was, he said to the serpent, you will strike the heel of this one that's promised coming from the seed of woman. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. That's a promise that God gives. So the rest of the Old Testament is God working to bring that about. So he identifies a man. That man has a family. That family becomes a nation. That nation is a nation of priests and kings and prophets. And all of them point towards the coming one. So you get to the prophets and they begin proclaiming 
proclaiming how insufficient humanity has been and how they need a redeemer. They need a savior. That is the promised one all the way back in Genesis 3. Then all of a sudden, when Jesus comes on the scene in the gospels, God has accomplished what he promised he would do. The one has come who will crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus says, the father has been working until now and I am working. So in other words, I've taken the baton from God. I am God, I've come in the flesh and now I'm gonna finish the work that was started all the way back, that was promised all the way back in Genesis three. And so he knows what he's doing because he's seen the work of the father. He knows what the father's been doing ever since Genesis three. And now he's continuing on to fulfill all that the scriptures have foretold. And that's the picture that's been painted for us there. God has been working. Now Jesus is working. And Jesus explained that he's doing everything that has been dictated by the father in the scriptures, by the prophets. So what is that? What, what is it that Jesus is doing? Because he sees the father doing it. Well, it's bringing the dead back to life. Now that has different meanings. It can be physically bringing the dead back to life, but it's also, we have to understand the spiritual overtones of death and life. There is a spiritual death and a spiritual life that they talk about all throughout the gospels. Though you are alive, you're still dead. There's another place, though you're dead, you can be alive. So there's this picture that even though we may be living and breathing, we can still be dead, dead spiritually. And in fact, that's what Paul tells us in Romans is that what we are, we are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, even though we're living and breathing. And so the work of the Father is to bring those who are dead back to life. And that's true spiritually, and it's true physically, which is what this passage is going to talk about. So what Jesus is doing is what he's seen the Father doing, and he's continuing that, the raising of the dead. Matter of fact, this was already hinted at in the Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and here's where John was telling us about Jesus giving this answer. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus had spoken. So right there in chapter two, you know, spoiler alert, right? John gives it to you right there in chapter two, which tells you he's not writing a novel. He's not trying to build suspense. He tells you in the beginning what's gonna happen at the end. Jesus is gonna rise from the dead. And he tells you that when he said this, apparently because he gives this explanation, nobody understood what he was talking about. Obviously the Pharisees didn't understand, but his own disciples didn't understand. They didn't know what he was talking about until he rose from the dead. And there were three days and they were like, we remember what he said. That makes sense now. He was talking about his body, not the actual temple. They destroyed it and he brought it back in three days. So this faith that we're called to, this belief to believe in Jesus as a son, what does this faith help us to do? What does it help us to do, especially in a world where tyranny and injustice prevail on so many places on the face of the earth. You know, it, it prevails in, in a lot of dark countries, but it also prevails in countries that are free. There is tyranny and injustice right here in the United States. And it happens in small pockets all over the place. Sometimes it happens in large places. We would say our world is infested with this type of tyranny and injustice. So what kind of hope 
does trusting in Jesus bring to that? Well, that's what he's displaying for us. That's what he wants us to understand in this passage today. And it's actually pretty amazing that when you really consider Jesus's words here to the religious leaders, the ones who are, I mean, according to what we studied last week, the ones who are now seeking to kill him, there is still this offer alongside this idea of judgment that they could believe right now and find hope and find eternal life. I mean, these people that are so antagonistic against Jesus, here in this moment, he is still offering them the opportunity to choose life, to follow after him. If they would just take time to hear the word and believe in the word, the word that is sent from God, the word that has become flesh, they could literally have eternal life right there in that moment. However, the other side of that is that if they continue in their denial, if they continue in their vitriol, the refusal to hear becomes their death. It becomes their judgment. So this invitation comes to us today through the words of Jesus and through the gospel of John. The reason John includes this is because he understands his readers are going to read this and he wants us to understand this as an invitation for all of us. The invitation is for everyone addressed to us as individuals. When Jesus tells us to take up our bed and walk, we have a choice. We can either take up our bed and walk or we can remain among the sick and the lame and the blind and the dead spiritually. So the passage today begins with the third and last phrase in this passage we've been studying, truly, truly. They call this amen, okay? What the word amen means is truly, truly, or let this be so. So the word is amen, truly, truly, I say to you, okay? Now this is important because Jesus uses this over and over again. He said this to the woman at the well. He says this to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you. And he says it to grab your attention. Truly, truly means I'm about to say something that's gonna be hard for you to understand and comprehend. So I really want you to pay attention and I really want you to think about it. And I don't want you to dismiss it because it sounds far-fetched. I want you to think about it, ponder it, receive it, and believe it, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, because he's talking about resurrection and this is gonna be foreign for them. So he's grabbing our attention because there's something very serious that's about to be said. Matter of fact, the words that follow this truly, truly are words of life and death. Words that literally the souls of those who are hearing, their souls are in the balance of whether they will be found in death or whether they will be found in life. Their destiny depends on how they hear and how they respond. Look what it says in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, obviously, again, Jesus is not saying that if you can physically hear him, oh, you're gonna live. The hearing is obviously going back to something the Jews would have understood, the Shema. What does the Shema mean? What's the word Shema mean in Hebrew, you know? Hear, yeah, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with 
all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Okay, So when you hear, when they understand the word hear, they understand it as hearing means action follows that. Hearing means not only do I believe and voice that I believe, but my whole life's trajectory has changed because of what I've heard and accepted and received and believed. Okay. So that word is very weighty in the scripture, set especially for the first century people who would have heard this. Now, he talks about this resurrection here. Um, in Jesus' day, it was very common for the Jews and especially the Pharisees specifically to believe that God would one day raise the dead. Now, the main thought behind this resurrection was that God was somehow going to right the wrongs that had been done, especially the wrongs that were done in this life that never found justice in this life. For example, we could think about tragedies throughout the world. Hitler won, visiting so much havoc on the world. And yet Hitler at the end of World War II escapes. We don't know really what happens to him. And he just kind of disappears into the darkness. He never meets justice. He never faces any kind of justice for what he did. And I think all of us say, whether it's that situation or another one, that there, there has to be something. People have to pay for the evil that they visited on other people. And so this hope was, as early back as the Jews, of that God was one day going to resurrect everyone. And in this resurrection, he would then right all the wrongs. In other words, there would be justice taking place for what people had done in their lifetime. So even though it may not have found its fruition here, it will in the life to come. And so this is going to include this resurrection to judgment or a resurrection to life. As a matter of fact, Daniel was one who was the prophet who foresaw this and actually prophesied about this. Now, this text right here, you find that Jesus is going back to the book of Daniel on two occasions. Number one, right here, this picture of resurrection to life or to death. Uh, when you go to the Old Testament, you find that not many of the Old Testament writers actually talked a whole lot about eternity. They didn't talk a whole lot about resurrection or the life after this life. There are places that if you think it, you will read it into it. Like um, Jacob one day says um, when he's about to die that I'm going to be with my fathers. David, um, when his child with Bathsheba was about to die and, and in fact did die, he said, he can't come to be with me, but I will go to be with him. And so we think of heaven, but in actuality, those verses really are talking about the ground. It's talking about the grave. Jacob knew that he was going to be buried with his fathers. And David was saying, I can't, he can't come to me. In other words, he's not gonna come back to life, but I will go to him. In other words, I will die just as he has died one day as well. That seems to be what they focus on because they don't really have this idea of eternity until you start getting to the point that they fail and they fail and they fail and they realize that they're never gonna meet the law's demands. And then when they find themselves in exile, Daniel is the first prophet who clearly, beyond the shadow of a doubt, so the David thing may be up in the air, maybe David was thinking eternity, maybe he wasn't, it's not very clear, but you can't argue with Daniel. Daniel makes it crystal clear. Listen to what Daniel says in his writing. Daniel chapter 12, verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
I mean, you can't get any more clear than that. Daniel begins to say, you know what? We're never going to meet the laws, uh, the, the demand of the laws. So God's got to do something different. So there's going to be one who comes, this one who's been promised, and he will show up, and he will rule the nations. And those who will trust in him, they will be resurrected to life. And those who don't trust in him, they will be resurrected to death, which is exactly what Jesus is saying here in this passage. In verse 25, Jesus is saying that his working... In other words, the Father's been working until now, and I am working. This working is the beginning work of raising the dead. In other words, he's broadening their perspective of what it means to raise the dead. To raise the dead, listen to me, both in this life and in the life to come. Just like we said, Paul talks about us being dead in our sins, being dead in our trespasses. So you're already dead, even though you're living and breathing. And so Jesus came, number one, to resurrect you from the death of your sins so that you may know life now and that you may know resurrection just as he rose from the dead physically so you will know both a spiritual and a physical resurrection. But those who do not trust in Jesus, who do not hear his words, who do not believe and trust and receive, they, as Paul says, you're already dead in your trespasses. So what we have to be clear here is we don't come to this neutral state where what we decide to do with Christ determines our destiny. I think a lot of people think about it that way. Like whatever you decide about Christ determines your destiny. So if you accept him, then you get life. But if you reject him, you get death. But that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture says, you're already dead. You're you're not in this neutral state where your decision is gonna decide where you go. You're already here. Remember, John has already told us in chapter three, Jesus said, I haven't come to bring condemnation. I've come to bring life. Why? Because you're already condemned. Why would I bring condemnation? You're already condemned. You're already living in your death. I've come so that you may have access out of that condemnation. That's why I've come. If I wanted you to be condemned, I just would not have shown up. I've come so that you may have a way out of that. But don't be deceived. There will be a day when everyone will answer to how did you respond to Jesus' invitation to come out of darkness? If you, if you heard and received, you received life. If you rejected, you remained in your death, and that's what you get for eternity. Do you see this? This is crucial for us to understand because this is the foundation of our salvation, of understanding how it is we come into this relationship with Christ and how we have the promise of resurrection. So John is building towards this. Now he does this with two events. We've already seen one, and I'm gonna mention two more. So the one event that we see where he has power over darkness is that he walks into this very dark place A lot of people believe that that pool was actually a worship place for the Greek god Asclepius, who is Asclepius was the Greek god of healing. Okay, well, that's where the whole thing, when it talks about the angel coming down and stirring the waters, that's not an angel from heaven. That's an angel of Asclepius, a dark angel who would come down and stir the waters. And there was really this idea, many uh, historians believe that it was a sham healing, it was fake. In other words, they, they created this legend to keep all of the cripples out of the city where everyone was walking back and forth because if they were in the city, they would be begging and it kind of makes the city look bad. So it kept them there. And so what they would do is they created this legend, oh, when the water bubbles, so when it stirs, you know, there's healing. But what they would do is they would put people there who actually didn't have any problems. When the waters would stir, they would jump into the water really quick and claim a healing, which would keep the hope alive for all the invalids who are really sick and really hurt, and they would stay there. 
This guy had been there for 38 years. And Jesus walks into that dark place of false healing and says, do you want to be healed, really healed? And the guy doesn't even know how to answer that. He just tells them, this is the condition that I'm in. Jesus resurrects that guy out of his death, out of his darkness, and brings him life. That's the first picture. When you get to chapter 11, you're going to see the second one, where Jesus walks into this graveyard of his friend. He says, roll back that stone. And they're like, you can't roll back that stone. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's going to stink. And he says, roll back that stone. And he rolls back that stone. And this is the only place that says Jesus wept, right? The shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. We get to that, it's gonna be beautiful, but I'm gonna go ahead and give you a little foreshadowing of that. Why did Jesus weep? I believe Jesus wept because he didn't wanna raise Lazarus from the dead because he knew where Lazarus already was. He wept because he had to bring his friend from eternity back into temporality just to show his power over death for a demonstration. I really believe that's why Jesus wept because he didn't want to do it, but he had to. It's a demonstration of his power over death. And I love how the country preacher put it. He said, Jesus walked in there and said, Lazarus, come forth. He said, if he wouldn't have said Lazarus, every dead man in that grave would have got out of their grave and come forth. And I think that's a picture. It is a foreshadowing. One day Jesus is just going to say, come forth. And every grave is going to open. And everyone who has lived life, their bodies will be resurrected to this judgment that they're talking about here. So John is building towards that. And of course, the ultimate display over power of death is gonna be the resurrection of Jesus himself. So in essence, John is furthering these thesis statements that he laid out for us in chapter one. Do you remember in chapter one, we talked about how John lays out where he's going throughout the rest of his gospel. All the themes of his gospel are introduced to us right there at the very beginning. And in chapter one, he says this in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does that mean? Spiritual birth. It's not the flesh. It's not the will of the man or a passion of man. This is born of God. This is spiritual birth. And so he's beginning to show us what the foreshadowings of that look like. So in the passage that we have before us today, Jesus is explaining what happens when we hear and believe that he is the word made flesh. This isn't just a new spiritual experience. It is literally moving from death to life. And so with this advancement of Jesus's ministry, the miracle of resurrection has already started in the hearts of those who hear and believe. That's what John wants us to understand by this display. It may seem a little bit confusing, but what Jesus is saying is, yes, there's gonna be a day when people are physically resurrected to life or to death. But I want you to know, if you hear and believe, the resurrection has already happened in your heart. It's already begun. It's not something you have to wait for. You don't go, well, I believe Jesus. And then you just sit and wait for eternity to come around. No, it's already started in your heart. In other words, what you're gonna find is what Jesus said in these last couple of weeks that we've studied, where he said, I have this special relationship with the Father. And what I see the Father doing, that's what I do. And what does the Father do? The Father is healing. He's resurrecting. The Father has given me the power to judge. Why? Because me and the Father, we're on the same wavelength. 
wavelength, we center around the same purpose, the same kingdom, the same identity. That's the picture of the Godhead. And so what you're going to find is John is going to begin to say that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, is inviting us into that divine relationship. Okay? That's what you're going to say. Not that we become gods but that we are invited into a relationship. Just as Jesus has a special relationship with the Father, you're gonna see him saying, we can have a special relationship with Jesus. Jesus is gonna say, as I've seen the Father doing, that's what I do. He's gonna say, as you've seen me do, you also do. So you're gonna do what you've seen Jesus do. He is your model, how you live, how you make decisions what you center around. So the very things that Jesus says sets him apart from everyone else eventually is what says sets those who are his followers apart from everyone else, okay? So why say this to people who are alive? Because the act of resurrection is immediately beginning in our hearts. So we now speak the language of resurrection. We don't speak about death as an end. We speak about it as a beginning. We don't look at a casket as the finished work of sin. We look at it as the beginning of the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. So our perspective of death and life has completely changed and we have hope for the future. And because we have hope for the future, listen, this is crucial, we act differently right now. Why? Because not only do we speak the language of resurrection, we live the life of resurrection. We live today as the hope that we have tomorrow. We know in part, but one day we will know in full, but we live in that part and we move towards that fulfillment every day that we follow Christ. Notice the tension between these two things in verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here. Okay, now this is the second time we've heard this in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the other time? It was with the uh, Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And remember, she was arguing, well, y'all say we should worship on that mountain, but our fathers say we should worship on this mountain. And Jesus says, I'm saying this to you, an hour is coming and in fact is here when true worshipers will wash, worship the Father in what? Yet neither on that mountain or this one, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying right now, the whole promise of God is right in the balance. We are in this tension between what God has promised and the fulfillment of it coming about in me. The hour is coming, yet is here. It's gonna be more perfectly fulfilled later, but the promise is already coming to fruition right now. Jesus offers eternity, offers forgiveness to people, even though he hasn't gone to the cross yet. How can he do that? Because he knows he's going to the cross. He knows that's the finished work. He knows what he's come to do and he knows he's gonna finish it. So even though that hasn't been done yet, he can still offer it already, not yet. We live in that already, not yet tension. There's a peace that we have in following Christ. We already have this peace, but we do not yet have it to its fullest capacity, right? Because we still have distractions and we still have these choices and sometimes life situations draw that peace away from us because we take our eyes off of Christ. It's already true. It's not yet experienced to its fullest potential. 
This is the tension that verse 25 creates. Look at verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So Jesus is reiterating something he said last, what we studied at last week in that last passage, that judgment was given to the son. The father doesn't judge anyone. He's given that to the son. So he's saying right here, he's given him authority to execute judgment. But he also reminds us in verse 26, first, that he's also granted life. Just as God is the father of, of life and the originator of all life, so he gives the power of life to the son. So now Jesus is saying the son has the power of life and the power of judgment. Okay, so both of those have been given to him. So the father who is life, the author of all life, has given this power to his son. And his work is revealed in what the son is doing. I only do what I see the father doing. The son now can share that life with whomever he chooses. And we see that displayed at the pool of Bethsaida. He shared life. So the Pharisees knew all of this to be true. Okay? They knew all of this to be true about God, especially. He is life. He's the author of life. They knew that God could raise the dead. However, it's very interesting in this passage that their very rigid view of God would not allow them the ability to see Jesus as the son of God who also had the power of life, not even with a man standing right in front of them who had been crippled for 38 years, standing on two good legs holding his mat that he laid on for 38 years. The evidence is right in front of you and you're denying it. But you know, a lot of times the warning is for us. What are we denying in the way that we live? Do we center ourselves truly around the principles of the kingdom of God or do we find ourselves like the Pharisees building our own kingdoms according to our own rules centered around our own righteousness? See, the warning here is there is plenty of evidence that your righteousness isn't good enough. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus is able to save. Have we committed ourselves in totality to Christ? So far, John has shown us through this interaction that the Father has given the Son both the power of life and the power of judgment. But look there at the end of verse 27. Jesus uses a very specific title when he refers to himself. And he uses the title, Son of Man. Now, the reason that's significant, if you go back just a couple of verses, he refers to himself as the Son of God. Now, all of a sudden, just a verse or two later, he calls himself the Son of Man. Well, again, this is a reference back to Daniel. Daniel is the one who designates this forerunner, or not, not the forerunner, but the, uh, the emerger of the Messiah, the promised Messiah emerging in the New Testament. Daniel says that that person who comes in, who is the promised one, that he is the son of man. And he calls him that. He gives him that title. So go to um, Daniel chapter 7. I'll have it here on the screen, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 is where we see this term, this title introduced. And listen to what Daniel was saying about what is centered around the Son of Man. In other words, what he's able to do, what's been given to him. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The Ancient of Days is a term designated for God, for Yahweh. 
And to him, talking about the one who was presented, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now think about what Daniel's saying there. He's saying there is one who is coming who is the son of man. So in other words, in the flesh, this person is going to come. And he is going to be designated by God as the one that all the nations, all the peoples will come under his reign. And he will have one kingdom, and that kingdom will last forever. In other words, all of the other nations will find an end to themselves and only those who come up under his reign and rule will find life, an eternal life in his eternal kingdom. That's what Daniel was saying a long time before Jesus came. And Jesus makes this reference when he says, I have been given the ability to judge as the son of man. Now think about that. Number one, when you think about the son of man in Daniel's vision, he is the one that the nations would bow down to. He's the one that would rule and bring judgment to them. Now look back with me in our text for today, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He starts that off by saying, do not marvel at this. This is the same thing he said to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. He's like, do not marvel at this, Nicodemus. You must be born again. He's like, I don't, I don't understand what that means. He's like, I know. Whenever he says, do not marvel at this, he means I'm about to say something that's gonna blow your mind and you're gonna have to stop for a minute and you're gonna have to take a deep breath and you're gonna have to take this in and actually think about it. So do not marvel at this. Don't mock this. Listen to what I'm saying. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. I love how one author put it. He says, God has longed to put the world to rights. Now with his apprentice son on the job, he is doing so at last. But bringing new creation to birth can only be done if the evil that has corrupted the old creation is named, shamed, and dealt with. And that is what judgment is all about. So when the new kingdom comes forward, the old kingdom has to be named, shamed, and dealt with. And that's one thing we all hope for, that God would come and right the wrongs. One thing we need to learn from this is what this judgment highlights. When Jesus calls forth the dead and they enter into one of the two eternities, we can't deny that the text says that the defining factor of that separation is what the individuals have done. You're like, oh no, that's works-based salvation right there. I mean, either they did good things and so they get rewarded for the good or they did bad things and they end up being rewarded for the bad. Now, I wanna take a little side road here, okay? And I'm gonna bring it back for a moment. Okay, so follow me in this. It's really important for us to see this and understand it for what it is. One thing we need to learn is what judgment actually highlights. So when Jesus calls forth the dead and they enter into one of those two eternities, it's important for us to understand that a simple I believe is all it takes to receive the free gift of God. It is. 
There's nothing more you can do. You can't be good enough to earn the kingdom of God. You can't do anything to earn his grace. A simple I believe is all it takes to receive eternity. But what this text is highlighting is if you really believe, just as Jesus knows he's from the Father, he centers his whole life around the Father's kingdom, the Father's purpose, and the Father's identity. So what he's saying there is if you really believe, you say, oh, I believe, but you don't center yourself around Christ and his kingdom, then you need to question, do you really believe? Do you see that? I can say all day long, and I believe in a healthy diet. But if you see me eating fudge rounds all day long, you're gonna question that, right? You're gonna, I don't know if he really believes in eating healthy. I mean, that guy's just shoving fudge rounds in his mouth all day long. And fudge rounds are good. I'm not dismissing them or calling them evil, but I'm just using that as an example. But you, you see what I'm saying? We can say, oh, I believe. And I think a lot of people in our culture, that's what they, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe he died. I believe, but then they live for their own kingdom. And that's the hypocrisy that's being called out here. If you really believe that he's the only source of life, that you are dead in your sins and the only way to life is through him, I believe that you're gonna center your whole life around it. You're going to receive it, you're going to embrace it and then you're going to live it out. See, we often make mistakes of being very selective of the passages that we like to use to talk about salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We love to use that one, right? But here there are passages that say, yes, salvation is as simple as believing, but salvation, true salvation is always followed by a demonstration that salvation has come to that person. You know, if Jesus would have walked up to the guy at the pool and said, you wanna be healed? And the guy was like, yeah, well, you're healed. And he walks away and the guy was like, I can't get up. I mean, you're healed, so I'm walking on. In other words, you say, he's not healed. What do you mean he's not healed? There's no, there's no demonstration of healing there. The demonstration is the guy gets up and stands on his two legs that he's never done it before, right? Demonstration. Does it matter if you say one thing, if there isn't a demonstration that follows it, that negates the whole, you know, what you're claiming that you believe, the confession. And so this is what's so important for us to understand. It's not enough to just say, I believe. The scripture even points to the fact that even demons say, we believe in Jesus, we know him, we know who he is, and yet they're not gonna be saved. That's not about salvation. True salvation is beyond belief in the sense that we accept and we center ourselves. Again, it's not what you do. You can't walk out of here and muster up salvation by doing a lot of good things. You, you didn't understand the text if you embrace it that way but true belief will be demonstrated by events in our life. So let's think about this story that preceded the text. There are two individuals that have been talking with Jesus. It's the religious leaders and the man who's been lame for 38 years and now has been healed. And even though the lame man didn't do anything to deserve his healing, Jesus obviously has an expectation that there should be a change in his life. Because not only is he healed, but when he goes and finds him in the temple, he says, look, you're whole. And then what does he say? Go and sin no more. After transformation of the body, there should also be transformation of the mind, of the way we live, of what we embrace to be true. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't say, hey, if you stop sinning, I'll heal you. 
That's where we have to understand why Jesus did it the way he did. Salvation is never something we earn, but once salvation has been given to us, there's an expectation that we will begin to pursue God and his goodness and his righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about the religious leaders. They claim to be righteous, but Jesus more than shows that their righteousness is based on their own goodness. In other words, a belief in themselves, not a belief in Jesus. So the warnings that we find in scripture are not just for unbelievers. In fact, the majority of them are directed towards those who actually believe. Think about this. Most often, the warnings are for us as readers who have already probably accepted this idea of who Jesus is. The warning is very sobering to us. So the point for those who believe is this. Don't use those passages of warning to point your finger at other people. Let those passages of warning be something that makes you reflective, that brings you to a point of self-examination because you are the one who are called to hear and to put into practice or hear and believe. So here's the point of, of what I believe this passage is saying to us today. The way that you hear and respond to Jesus has huge consequences to your eternity. John is going to provide a great indication of what this looks like with the raising of Lazarus in, in just a few chapters. And so there's the, he's building, he's moving towards that. But the standard for judgment leading either to this life or leading to this condemnation in the age to come is doing good or doing evil in this age, right? That's the way he's presented it. But we have to be very careful. This is where I wanna bring it back to what John is actually pointing out here, what Jesus means by this. Because when we look at the gospel of John, doing good throughout his entire gospel means this, believing in Jesus. And doing evil throughout his entire gospel means rejecting Jesus. So you gotta understand his terms from his way, what he means by it. He doesn't mean you're going out there and doing a whole lot of good things. The good that you're doing is believing because he believes in that believing, your life will now be oriented around Christ and therefore the transformation happens. But in your disbelief, your life will be ori oriented around yourself and around your own kingdom or the kingdom of this world and you will not see that transformation in your life. So to believe or not to believe is to do good or to do evil. So the question I have for you today is this, are you living in light of eternity? I mean, think about the decisions that you make day in and day. Think about how you spend money, how you spend time, uh, the kind of people that you associate with what you envision your life becoming, what you do, what do you wanna do in one year, five years, 10 years down the road? And when you begin to think about that, the world wants you to plan that out. But my question is, have you considered the kingdom of God? Have you considered what God wants you to do? Have you considered how you have been divinely created to impact the kingdom of God? And are you embracing it? And are you centering yourself around that kingdom? Do you long to see the wrong made right. Well, listen to me. We don't have to wait until judgment day for all of it to happen. We can right wrongs by centering ourselves around the kingdom of God. 
There are pockets in this world where we can immediately go in and we can heal the sick and we can preach the truth of the gospel and we can see the captive set free. Just like the work of resurrection begins in the heart of the believer long before we're physical resurrection, so we are called to work for the purpose of God, doing what we saw Jesus do, working in the kingdom of God to bring about that good judgment even in our day and time. Work towards the kingdom of God and the purpose of the kingdom of God. You see, again, we have to center ourselves around the same thing that Jesus did. Go to that last slide and let me just show you what I'm talking about here. When we saw the passage last week, we saw that Jesus lived with a common purpose, a common kingdom, and a common identity. In other words, he says, what I do is what I see the Father doing. That's a purpose. So they're all doing the same thing. There's never disagreement between the Son and the Father. They live for the same kingdom. The, the Son isn't coming out going, oh, I'm going to create my whole other kingdom over here. Or, Daddy, I'm tired of you trying to run everything. I want to run my own kingdom. There's never that disagreement. They are in total, total alignment. And then they have a common identity. I and the Father are one. Now, this is important because as the gospel of John unfolds, he invites us into this very identity. He says, I want you to be in me as I am in him. I want you to be one with me as I am one with the Father. He invites us to find our identity in him. He also says, what you see me doing, that you should do. He invites us to the same purpose. And he invites us to invest in the kingdom of God. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Why? Because you're centered around the kingdom of God. So the reason all of this is important and foundational is because when we get to the part of the gospel that begins to call us forward and say, here's your purpose and here's what you're called to do, it's already been demonstrated by the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? And I love the fact that today, as we teach this text, we are sending out people for the purpose of the kingdom of God. Did you see how many people were up here? Do you know that Mark Powell is actually counting and, and Mark Powell has been with us from the very beginning. And Mark said, do you know there's more people who are standing up there than Mars Hill started with the first day that we started Mars Hill Church? 16 or almost 16 years ago. More people up here that we're sending out than we started with in the very beginning. That is a beautiful testament to the work of God. And we pray that it continues on as we center around his purpose, his kingdom, his identity. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy to be worshiped and praised and honored and glorified. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the fairest of 10,000. You are our shepherd, the shepherd of our souls, the bishop of our hearts. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus, and only being drawn by the Spirit. Lord, we know these things to be true. We know these titles, Son of God, Son of Man, to be true of you. And yet sometimes in our life, our commitment lacks. Holy Spirit, give us the power to live to the potential that we have for your kingdom. Lord, help us to identify and have discernment in the things that are calling us away from our purpose and our destinies. And Lord, let us to focus in on who you are and what you've called us to be, how you have divinely prepared us and providentially called us to a purpose for your kingdom. Lord, don't let us be kingdom building for anything else other than yours, because as we read today, yours is the only one that's the everlasting kingdom. All others will crumble. Lord, may we live for something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our kingdom, bigger than our lives. 
Lord, may we continue to send out those who will be faithful to preach your word, to proclaim the gospel, to set the captives free, to heal the sick, to open the eyes of the blind. And Lord, in a spiritual way, more profoundly even than the physical, God, may you be honored and glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen.